Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Reform Baptist Church. It's so good to be here, and uh, it's, it's good to have some visitors. I won't call anybody out, but Scott, you've got wonderful parents, so take them out to lunch to a nice place. Uh, just a few announcements. Um, we have a, a card. Julia Flanagan made a, a sympathy card for Aragorn Thacker's family. That's circulating around the church somewhere. So if you are possessing it, would you give it back to Julia or give it to somebody who has not signed it yet? And Julia's in the back by the, the stairs. The Nelsons are having a fall fellowship out at Reformation Farms on the 23rd. I've sent a flyer out, and if you didn't get that flyer, you can go straight to the source and ask Amanda. Uh, but it would help planning if you RSVP'd one way or the other to them, whether you're coming or not. The next weekend, we're having evangelistic outreach at the pastor's house. The date will be announced, but because of that, there will be no church luncheon because we're going to be out enjoying the hayride, pies, fellowship at the Leightons, etc. And the rest of the... Okay. Okay. There, there was a comma in there, I think, somewhere, perhaps, maybe. So that's all the announcements and all the updates and corrections I have. We're going to begin our worship in, in song in just a minute. And if you want to turn to number two in your hymn book, it's a praise to God for our soul. I'm going to read Psalm 103, part of it, when we're done praying. But I want you to gather yourself as we've come together to worship the Lord, to Gather your mind and your heart to be able to worship him. Take a moment to confess your sin. Recognize that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Take a moment to pray privately. To ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart so that you might be able to hear and heed the very words of Christ that will be incorporated in our worship today, both in song and in our reading and in our proclamation of his truth. So take a moment privately to prepare your heart to worship the Lord, and I'll pray, and then I'll read this psalm, part of it, to introduce us, and then we'll rise and sing and worship Christ today. T take a moment, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered to together today as your people, praising your holy name for who you are. I pray that 
in our regular practice, this would not be so routine that we do not recognize the significance of being able to call you Father. Truly, Father, beyond the fact that you have created us and made us in your image, but yet we have rebelled against you, and you have brought us restoration in life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is our union with Christ, adoption into your family, that we can truly cry out, Abba, Father that you will truly hear us and that you care for us in a unique way. Love us, blessed in your Son, blessed are we in Christ. I pray that will, truth will be so significant in our own hearts that whatever maladies might face, whatever madness in this world that we might see, whatever discouragement or disappointment might come our way, we would find our contentment in you and in Christ. I pray, Father, that each one of your servants would be granted a great deal of peace in the midst of whatever chaos or confusion might fall their way. I pray that each one of us in Christ would also have great joy, joy not in, uh, necessarily in the circumstances, but certainly appreciate the good gifts that you give us from day to day, the joys of friendship and family, feast days and other things that we might look forward to. Certainly all of those are a good gift of, of your hand, but ultimately the joy that awaits those that are in Christ far beyond our imagination. May we break forward in a smile, a smile of great joy and delight to be in Christ and thanksgiving to you, O Lord, for rescuing us, restoring us, and putting us on a, uh, a solid footing in your in in your resources i pray father that you will be with us even this day that we may be able to truly bless the lord in our very souls i pray this in christ's name amen before we sing this praise in hymn number 2 let me read for you this text of scripture think through it as I read. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, and so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, 
so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Let's rise to sing together hymn number two, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven.
morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is going to be from Psalm 77. It can be found on page 488 in your Pew Bible. Psalm 77, page 488 in your Pew Bible. A little header in, in the Pew Bible states, uh, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. Because what trouble can exist when we have an almighty God? Let's read the scripture. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearing. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old. The years long ago, I said, let me remember my songs in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord burn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compass, his com- excuse me, his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to the, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deeps trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave from thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. Your crash, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful day you give us to be worshipped. Uh, every day is truly a blessing that we have to worship uh, free, Lord, and while we face troubles, we understand that many people around the world face troubles and have for many time and, and that they aren't allowed to freely worship you and they sacrifice much. We appreciate the freedoms you give us, Lord, and we pray that as times grow darker, Lord, that we would continue to stay true to you and that you would give us peace of mind to always trust and obey you, Lord. And we pray that you would bless our offering today, Lord, and that we would all grow and seek to glorify you in all we do. In Jesus' name,
Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Be thou my love many of the hymns and I wouldn't want to select just one but that's also a good one and thank you for the string duet one with bow and the other percussion it was beautiful thanks for leading us into worship of Christ our King let's find and see his glory here in John chapter 18 we're at John chapter 18. 
We're going through the Gospel of John, essentially verse by verse. It is a narrative, so we're going to read a bit more today. We've come across this familiar part of the narrative which describes Peter's denial. I'm called the message, The Rooster Crows, so that we can just hold it in our mind what's going on here. My summary, really, of this section here about Peter's denial, it reminds me of what Paul said to the church at Corinth. Anyone that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. This narrative of Peter's fall, his denial, is included in in all the Gospels. Which, by the way, is another indication of the verity of the Scriptures. Often when you would write about yourself, you would make the story a little better. (laughs) They show exactly what's happened, and this is not good. This particular story about about, uh, Peter is intertwined with the narrative about Jesus' trial. And that's not on accident because these events, the illegal trial about Jesus and this first part before the religious authorities who were the rulers of the day, This is juxtaposed against Peter's failure. They're happening at the same time. Now, our focus today is going to be on Peter and his denial and some observations that we can make about that. But let's not forget where we have been and what we are talking about because this story is intertwined, if you will, And I think for a very specific purpose. Not only just to show us about Peter and for us to learn application from his experiences, but also to once again display the glory of Christ. Because as we have already gone through, Jesus is brought before Annas, the patriarch, And Jesus is shown to be glorious and as guilty. He's then brought before Caiaphas, and the same is true. In fact, the only thing they can convict Jesus Christ on is the absolute truth, that he is the Christ, that he is God incarnate. And as we mentioned last week, that they didn't even bother bringing out any witnesses who might testify to that very fact. In fact, the city would have been full of them, from the very least to the greatest. They could have called shepherds forward, and they would have gotten that verity. They could have called some of their own priestly friends, some who weren't even there, and they would affirm that any of the people in the city who saw the great works that Jesus had done, indeed, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even in the midst of this 
illegal trial, this, all the deception done against Jesus, Jesus shines forth and stands firm and faithful to the absolute truth. That is all that comes from his mouth, is absolute truth. They finally ask him to swear an oath, who are you? And he says, I am God incarnate, I am the Messiah. It's demonstrated by everything he says and everything that he does. In fact, even in this band that comes out to get Jesus and arrest Jesus, he merely speaks to them and says, I am, and they all fall over. Peter, who we're going to talk about now, who's engaged in this failure, a denial... He was right there and, in fact, tried to take on that whole band. And if you remember, in swinging his sword, trying to lop off the head of the guy closest to him, he lops off his ear instead. And here, Jesus, at that very event, protecting his own disciples so that they will be taken away and only him captured, he takes and picks up an ear severed from Malchus by Peter and sticks it back on his head in some fashion or perhaps even just put his hand over his ear. But the bottom line is he didn't use any stitches, no tape, no glue. He just restores his ear as if it were never injured at all. Can I tell you this? I've never met anybody who could do that. Have you? These guys were eyewitnesses of that very thing. And that will play a part in what we're talking about here. It is amazing how wretched sin is. And how blind fallen man is. And even Peter, who is redeemed, has been with Christ, has seen all of this, how his faith may wax and wane as well. And here we see Christ never fails. But the best of men, and at this point in history, Peter would have been, he would have been the lead disciple. If you were to write down the names of the disciples, there's 12 of them at this time. Can you, can you guess them all? Probably not. But I'll tell you one you would guess, and that would be Peter. Peter is contrasted with Christ. And Peter doesn't compare. He can't hold a candle to him. As good and great and courageous and valiant as Peter might have been, in comparison to Christ, he's an utter failure. But I can assure you this right now, if you get nothing else, Christ is not. He indeed is Lord. And I would call on you even in this moment to confess him as Lord and to live the rest of your life recognizing Jesus Christ is Lord.
the challenge before Jesus Christ was, was the ultimate supreme in this confrontation of truth. He passes it with flying colors. As we read about Peter, who is a great man, But his trial, if you will, is very simple in comparison, and he utterly fails. Peter is just dealing with some folks in the shadows who have no authority, power to do anything. And Jesus is dealing with those in absolute authority and power. And he flourishes, Peter fails. Our focus will be on Peter primarily, so we'll read the text as it winds around the story of Christ's trial that we've been through. And so in our text, in John, we'll look at verse 15 through 18. We're going to pull apart the narrative concerning Peter. And then we'll pick it back up in verse 25 through 27 just to help us keep our focus here. In this reading, you're going to find not one failure, but three. Three, as we call, denials of Christ. The first one is in verses 15 through 18, the second one picks up, I'm sorry, in in 17, picks up in verse 18, and the final one picks up in verse 26. Let me read the text in your hearing, beginning in verse 15 of John 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered in He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "You You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Strike one. Verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them and standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. Verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would uh, 
certainly be enamored with the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of this utter failure. May we find Christ to be the strength we need, the source for our sustenance, and certainly for our forgiveness. May Christ be glorified even now. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let me first just go over this narrative a little bit with you. We've read it. You've heard about it. Maybe a few things have triggered in your mind that you haven't thought of before, and there's much we could do. I won't belabor the point, but at least I want to give some background to this narrative and explain a few points so that we can find some of the relevant applications. There are many, and I'll just highlight a few. But I think it's really important to know the background from the other Gospels, particularly Jesus's knowledge of what's going on and therefore his prophetic statement for what happens right now. God is always in control of all things. Jesus demonstrates that indeed he is God incarnate because he explains exactly what you're just what we have just read. Matthew records this for us. You might want to turn there Matthew 26. Keep your finger at 18 of John, but Matthew 26 and we'll begin verse 31. Remember, this is where we're at in John as John's explaining this is the the night before Christ is going to be crucified, he's, he's with his disciples. He's teaching them final words before he's going to go. He goes out with them. He prays with them. And then he explains, as Matthew tells us in verse 31 of his gospel, Matthew 26. Jesus says, you will all fall away because of me this night. And then he quotes the Old Testament prophet, it is written, I will strike the shepherd of the sheep and the flock will be scattered. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And the disciples are going to fall away in a sense. They will fail. But verse 32 certainly gives hope. But after I am raised up, so he talks about his resurrection, I will then go before you to Galilee. So Jesus tells him what's going to happen this very night. This is, this is not something that he told them, oh, I don't know, a year ahead of time, although he kind of did. It, but it's fresh in their mind. It isn't even last week's prophecy directions. It is not just that day, it is that very hour he's explaining this to them right there, right before them. And here's Peter's response in verse 33. Well, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. <laughs> Now you know why it keeps ringing in my mind, he that thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall, right? 
because we know the rest of the story. But Peter here, in his great confidence, he is going to be the bold one. He is going to be the one that will never fall. He is the one that will never fail. Can I stop here and tell you this? There is one who will never fall. There is one who will never fail. Do you know him? I think you do. It's Jesus Christ. Peter, as great a man as he as he was, Christ had just told him what is going to happen. And here he doesn't reflect on Christ's word and follows his own mind and thoughts. So Jesus responds to him in verse 34, and here he adds the word amen, if you will, truly translated in our text. Truly, in other words, this is an absolute certainty. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now you know why John included <coughs> those details in that very story. So this is the second admonition Jesus gives against to Peter. And what is his response? You know, rescue me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Um, no. Verse 35, this, he says, well, even if I must die with you, which Christ will be arrested and killed, I will not deny you. And note here also what it says, and all the disciples said the same. They were all going in that same trajectory. We point Peter out, but he actually represents all of them. He has a tendency to do that, to be the spokesman of the group. Hence, we, when we talk about the disciples, we put them in certain order normally in scriptures, Peter, James, and John, because Peter at this point seemed to be the one that would step up and speak out. He was overconfident. Maybe he was a bit complacent with his own life, but this... Attitude isn't just on Peter, it is on all the disciples, and Christ has given them a warning of this ahead of time. Let's go back to John 18, and then I just want to point out a few points from the narrative and then make some applications from it. In this John 18, verse 15, he gives us the background of what's going on in this first denial prophesied by Christ, acted out here in the narrative of the text. Notice here that it is Peter following, with, following Jesus and another disciple not mentioned here. Another disciple, verse 15, <coughs> that happened to have an inside connection. If you remember the background here, Jesus said, on the night that I'm going to be taken, all of you are going to be scattered. And indeed they were. Jesus protected his disciples. He made that mob of well over a thousand, could be a couple thousand people, 
that were coming to arrest Jesus, he made them declare that they were going to arrest Jesus alone, not his disciples. Peter about messes it up, right, by getting himself in trouble, which he could have been arrested for the damage that he did to the high priest's servant. Jesus resolves that problem. And so they are free to go, and they do, and they're scattered. But what evidently occurs, though, the disciples are gone, they're scattered. Jesus alone is arrested and brought to trial. But now Peter wants to know what happens to Jesus, so they kind of secretly sneak in and the back door, if you will. This other disciple that's mentioned, there's two of them. This other disciple is John. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time demonstrating and proving that in Scripture. <clears throat> you have to be really eager to get a Ph.D. in theology to come up with somebody else other than John. So I won't waste your time. That's who the other disciple is. You know, the disciple who Jesus loved, <clears throat> the obvious one who doesn't use his name in his gospel. I digress. This is John, okay? John's writing the story. He knows what's going on. He had connections with the priestly class there. And so he's able to get Peter in on the action, so to speak. The, the courtyard, this whole area, this enclave of priests would have been right around the temple. They wouldn't just let anybody through. But John had connections and he was able to get through and he was able essentially to pull Peter in with him. And note the text here, it does demonstrate though as Peter's going in, he's outside the door, now he's going inside in verse 16 to get a closer view. They're, they're just not publicly announcing that they're the disciples, but notice here it says a servant girl who's keeping watch over this door, verse 16, it is that girl then who asks Peter, are you not one of the disciples? The way it's phrased grammatically is, yeah, she knows he is, and she's just asking him to, to affirm it. She's just making that statement. Peter, for some you can put motives all you want. We're not precisely sure, but we know exactly what he did. He denies it. He says, I am not. This servant girl is, it's translated servant, it really is a slave. She's essentially a nobody. Nobody's going to listen to a word she has to say. She's just there minding the door. She has no authority no cloud. Doesn't matter what she says. Most people just aren't even going to pay any attention. And seemingly, innocently, she just asks Peter, aren't you one of those disciples? Now, Jesus had been in a public ministry and been well known. No one had a doubt who he was. He had been in Jerusalem and doing these incredible miracles. And guess what? He had an entourage with him, the disciples. Um, they might not have remembered all of the disciples, but I think they would remember the lead disciple. And that's where she undoubtedly is getting her information. 
There's really no need to deny, yet he's perhaps just careless, maybe just not thinking. And here, really, a lie is told. Not for a great reason, because isn't this the guy, after all, that was going to die with Jesus? And just a short time before this, wasn't this the guy who, had a, who yanked a sword from his side and began to take on the whole mob, however many, who were all armed as well? What's going on here? I don't know. I don't think he was afraid of her. Perhaps he was just careless and just didn't want to make a, a scene and thought a lie would be a better option. This second denial in verse 18 kind of steps it up just one notch, if you will. Notice the progression. <coughs> the Now in verse 18, it is, it, he's in, the, in this courtyard area, and there's servants and officers, officers of the temple, had some official capacity, but not a tremendous amount of authority. Servants, again, is a term for slaves. They're, they're there. They're, this is the working class. They're there, and apparently it's cold, so they create a fire. And, and here you have Peter. Peter warming himself, and notice verse 18, he, he is with them. He's warming himself. He's standing with them. He's in this group, more or less one of them. And so they recognize, oh, here's Peter. This is one of the disciples. And they ask the same question. And Peter then denies it. He says, I am not. In a sense, I could see this group is perhaps a little more formidable than the lone servant girl. But is, to me, his failure to tell the truth even here is not understandable. Not given his proclivities already. It's somewhat more understandable, but ultimately wrong. Some have pointed out this idea, which I'll get into in a bit, of standing and warming as showing a, a close association. Maybe he's, he's in this group now and just doesn't want to be disassociated. And certainly our associations can have great influence over, so either positive or negative, even in a temporal sense. But that's the picture, what's going on. The third Denial, the third strike, if you will, is found in verse 26. Then a particular servant is then steps up. And note the text here, it says who this person is. This is a, a relative, it says, of the man whose ear Peter had caught, cut off. And he asks him, didn't I see you. See, the others were like, we saw and we kind of think, here you can see one more step 
of verity. This is the guy who was a relative of the man, probably close by. I can assure you this man knows who Peter is, without a doubt. And Peter knows that this man knows. So it's almost totally understandable that Peter then has this same response. Again, verse 27, he says that he denied it. His deception, it's obvious lie. It gets bolder and bolder even in the face of somebody who asks him a question and that person who asks him knows that Peter is telling him an absolute bold-faced lie. Well, in the narrative then, it hits this crescendo moment. Peter has done exactly what Christ has said, what happened, and immediately a rooster crows. It didn't just happen to crow. <laughs> Don't even worry about the timing and whatever. You know why the rooster crowed? Because Jesus said he was going to crow. Do you know who Jesus is? He is God incarnate. He is the Savior of the world. Luke provides some detail at this very moment of what was going on. Jesus would have been in the distance. And we heard about Jesus already in front of Caiaphas, giving nothing but verity and truth. And at that very moment, after Peter, the, the best of men, if you will, fails three times in a row really for no reason and it's marked out with this call of the rooster the Lord verse 22 chapter 22 of 61 in Luke I'll read it for you the Lord then turned in the midst of what he was what was going on in his trial he turns and he looked at Peter Man, I couldn't imagine what that, what that might have been like. Could you? Jesus had pre-warned him. Peter fails. It's marked by this crowing of the rooster. And Jesus then looks at Peter, just looks at him. And at that very moment, it says in Luke Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Well, that, there is more to this story, and we'll get to it in chapter 21. There you'll see Peter in a great remorseful state, a state of great repentance, and ultimately restoration by this one who looks at him. And I just want to stop and say right here, 
when you thought about Christ turning and looking at Peter here after he denied him, you might think he was looking at him to scorn him. But as we understand about who Christ is and who those who are in Christ, he looked at Peter to restore him. And he does do it. I'm sure that was a great weight for Peter and discouragement to fail not once, not twice, but three times. And really for not much reason at all, why in the world did I do what I don't want to do? This is part of what we would call remaining sin, even in the best of men. But I assure you, if I don't get anything else done today, I'm saying simply this. If you fail, look to Christ. He is looking at you. So what can we learn? What observations? Well, I have many, and I'm sure you do too. I'll touch on some of those. Let's do that together in our minds But I'll touch on a few that I have time for. I would say this, as we kind of alluded to, really. Peter here is is the best. The best of the disciples, at least at this time. As I mentioned, he's the spokesman. He, He has great courage and conviction. I mean, he's going to take on everybody. To protect Christ. He's bold. He's brash. Jesus does have to tamp him down a bit. He does rebuke him. Because Jesus has a purpose for what's going on. And part of Peter's problem was he wasn't listening to Christ. I mean he heard him. But he really wasn't obeying and following him. As I mentioned, Peter's challenge was, was really simple in comparison to what Christ was going through at the same time. But his temptation towards failure, and in this case, denial, a lie, this comes to all. Peter is highlighted and singled out simply as an exemplar of fallen Men, even those that are redeemed, who still, who still must struggle on a regular basis against sin, which so easily will beset you. Paul would tell the church at Corinth that really there's no temptation that isn't common to man. So, well, you don't know what I'm having to go through. Oh, okay. This is a common experience. And even in that, you're not going to be tried and tested beyond your ability to overcome it. Oh, you're not going to overcome it in the flesh, but I'm talking the ability of those that have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them by the power of the Spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And again, if you fail, like Peter did, to do so, you look to Christ. 
He will give you a way of escape. Part of the Peter's problem was he perhaps he wasn't careful enough. He wasn't looking for a way of escape. He wasn't prepared for it. He was perhaps overconfidence. What do you need to do? I would suggest this. Recognize that you're in a war and put on your armor. Paul would tell the church at Ephesus that very thing as he wraps up this great little epistle to the church, tells them all about their their doctrine of, of how God had chosen them before the foundation of the world and how they are redeemed by Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace and then sealed forever. He closes that epistle this way. I'll read it for you. Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Why? Because you are not strong enough in and of yourself Peter wasn't strong enough and neither are the rest of the disciples. So be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He goes on to say, well, we really don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can I tell you, it's out there. You don't need to go in fear, but in great faith. But if you don't have the protection of God, if you're not being strong in the Lord, guess what? You have no chance. And if you forget to armor up, you're going to be exposed to failure, to sin. And Paul will continue to write and say, well, in explaining what that's like, the armor of God in verse 13 of Ephesians 6 Take it up so that you can withstand in the evil day. Can I tell you what today is? It is the Lord's day. We're worshiping. But remember, we're worshiping in an evil day. Right? It's, it's going to go from bad to worse. You think it can't get any worse? I assure you it will. And you'll need the strength to be able to stand. To withstand the evil day and, and having then done all to stand, then stand firm. Stand, having your, and this is a great analogy and illustration of somebody in battle, having fastened on the belt of truth. And what today we need more than anything is absolute truth. Can I tell you, as Paul mentioned in his lessons here, there is one source of infallible truth, Paul, isn't it? Where is it? It is right here. There are no other sources of infallible truth. Okay? There are great ideas, great lessons, great suggestions, and great thoughts about a lot of things. Can I tell you there is one source of verity? It is here. This is it. 
be belted with this. Do not deny what this says. You may not understand it or how to put it all together. That is okay. This is from the mind of God. I would expect the mind of man to have some conflicts. As Peter did when he heard the very word of Christ expressed to him. He's saying, no, that's not ever going to happen. Don't deny the truth. Stand in the truth. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. What righteousness would you wear? Not your own, but Christ's. Have your shoes, if it were, for your feet. Put some shoes on. Be ready with the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is that very truth, the Word of God. And here's an idea. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. If you remember, just prior to this, he had a little trouble at the Gethsemane prayer meeting, didn't he? (laughs) Sleeping instead of praying. Keep alert, he would say. Persevere. And then, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for your brothers and sisters, for all saints. Be alert. Second observation I'd like to make is that this temptation in his case, denial, this failure, it really came when he least expected it. He may have been surprised or caught off guard. He was clearly in a different mindset in the garden when this whole mob comes against him, right? Is he denying Christ then? No. What's the odds against him, against all this mob of people? No, he's going to die. He knows that. He's prepared for it. But here, he doesn't recognize the schemes of the devil, the opposition that is so light and easy, just like a a, a word and a question from this little insignificant, socially, if you will, servant girl. Jesus had warned him. He warned him, but he wasn't looking for this trap. I find this interesting, and I do see a connection here. Peter does learn his lesson, and so as he writes his epistle to those who would listen, ultimately us in the church, I'll just quote it for you, 1 Peter 5.8. You know his admonition is here for you and me? reading about this denial, he would say simply this, be sober and be watchful. Those are good words. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, (coughs) prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is to be mindful. There's great danger And that danger wants to destroy and devour. Could I tell you, we're concerned about many things in life and in this day. But virtually no one is concerned about this roaring lion who seeks to devour you. 
Could you imagine the imagery? What if there was some sort of wild beast right outside the door that would show up from time to time? Do you think we might be a little bit more careful in making our way to vehicles? Sorry if there's small children in here. There are no big real thing. Because we can grasp the physicality of it, can't we? And we would be on guard, fearful to some degree, Certainly going through life, I'm not much of a um, hiker through the woods, but people who have told me that's what they do. They're, They're very careful. There's venomous snakes out there. There are wild animals. It's a good illustration. But beyond that, most of these animals in nature, they're not necessarily trying to trap you like prey. And destroy you. They, they, if they come upon you, they might be trying to really defend themselves and get away. But here, the imagery—it's—it's it's beyond that. This is the trap that Paul warns about, where this roaring lion is actually seeking to devour you. Or as Paul would tell Timothy, he calls it a another imagery—a snare of the devil. That is, there is this trap that is laid. You can't see it, as if some it were covered with some debris, and and without your careful watchfulness and soberness, you just walk right into it, and. You're devoured, trapped. You think you're safe, and then you recognize where you're standing is not solid ground. It is a call for vigilance. And even Peter in this situation was caught off guard, if you will. third thing I would note, too, is, and there's many, but one of the others that I noted from the text is, and I've alluded to it, and others have, too, I I think there is something to it back in verse 18. In his second denial, here he is associating with these folks, and understandably so, he was called, but it says that he he was with them. I think this is more than just you know, trying to get a little closer to get a little bit more warmth. All right. And you, you have to examine it for yourself. But I think that's the imagery there. It, it's, it's like more of a, um, a fellowship with this group. He's, he's at one with them. There is no distinction. In fact, if the distinctions were made, they probably wouldn't want him too close to them in the first place. I think that imagery is true. It reminds me of what a man that is blessed by Christ, how he does structure his life from Psalm 1. Do you remember it? What's characteristic of the blessed man? The blessed man is the redeemed man, by the way. And parallels over into the New Testament where we're blessed in Christ. The blessed man is one whose sins are forgiven, who are atoned for. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does what? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Those wicked sinners and scoffers are essentially parallel. The distinction of the, of the walk, stand and sit seems to indicate somewhat of a progression. 
In other words, this, this life is just not characteristic of this degree of fellowship with the wicked, with sinners, with those that would scoff at Christ. There is a degree in which you, you must be in the world in some sort of connection, but yet a distinction. Christ explained it to his disciples just a chapter earlier when he prays to the Father and he says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That, that, that's, a, that's a distinction there. Christ himself was in the world, but not of the world. And those that are in Christ, yes, we must engage and be a part of the world in which we're involved with, but not of it. There should always be something distinctively Christian about a Christian. It should be manifested at some point, and if somebody even notices it and asks, here, he just denies it. Bad company can ruin good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, because you're engaged in that without a distinction, and it can affect you. Peter was with them. He had solidarity, if you will, to some degree, whatever that might be, with those that were in league against Christ. Remember, this whole mob, everybody, they're all against Christ. There's one person, well, in this case, actually two, because it's about Peter, but John's there as well. But this is, they're the only ones that are for Christ. Everyone else here is against Christ. And somehow he is with them. Number four, I've kind of indicated it all along, but I hope you've seen it. There is this progression of denial, of temptation, and then failure. It's very subtle and very easy in the first one with this servant girl. I mean, who cares about her? Whatever you say to her, whatever, it doesn't matter. Then you have the servants and officers that he's mingling with that we talked about. Well, they would actually know a little bit more and have a greater degree of, of influence. And, and certainly they would have, it's a multitude of people, don't know how many there, but it's plural and distinctive two different groups that are gathered together. This is a, a bigger denial. And then finally, the, the, the final one, it is, a, it is somebody who is actually a relative of the person that Peter cut his ear off. He knows for sure. I don't think it's coincidental that these denials become progressively more difficult to deny. I think it's intentional to demonstrate here. Listen, if you give in a little, it will progress to giving in a lot. Maybe if it started out with this relative pointing him in the eye, said, hey, I was there, that's my whatever, brother, cousin. He got his ear off, maybe he, he, he stopped cold. But here, it's just a little crack in the door. And then it gets a little wider. Unattended to, it'll get even wider. And before long, you could drive a truck through it. 
the progressive nature of sin. Giving in a little sears your conscience. That's the inner witness of right and wrong. You can inform your conscience with the truth. You may not understand things. That's fine. Find your source. Have your conscience directed by the truth. But as you apprehend things, it's a great warning not to, not to go against that inner feeling of right and wrong. The Hebrew concept of that is, is lev. In, in Hebrew, it means heart. Their idea of heart is not the idea of compassion like we might think heart. It's, it's the mind. The more you give in to evil, the more you remove the sensitivity to it. Ultimately scarring your conscience, if you will. Reducing the sensitivity towards it. Sort of like getting calluses on your hands. That could be a good thing if you're a cowboy and handling rope or playing a musical instrument, right? You develop some desensitivity so that you can accomplish that. That practice doesn't work when it comes to sin. Because your desensitivity means that a greater force and a greater pressure can come and it's much easier to give in the second or third time couple more. Giving in, you will wind up in great remorse and regret your actions. Luke will tell us Peter's response in Luke 22. He says that he went out and wept bitterly. I can understand that. You been there? Going out? Why in the world did I give in to these fleeting pleasures of sin? He may have thought initially that his actions wouldn't be that consequential. But he lies to these people. And he lies to himself. And he ultimately lies to the Lord. And that brings great remorse. Great remorse to those that really truly love Christ. And that's the good news here. Is that you can be restored. And though we won't go into the details of it. I have two th more things to say. We're not going to get into the details of it now. I'm looking forward to it in John 21. I might encourage you to read ahead. It's in a beautiful dialogue between Jesus and Peter based on this very event. But I can assure you this, that Christ's grace is greater than Peter's sin. His grace is greater than your sin. And as much as you might in even weep and um, afflict yourself in, in failure... Know that Christ will turn those tears to joy. And he can truly restore. That look of Christ and the look of those who uh, love you and want to bring you back are that for that very thing so that your joy will be full. 
It is the marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. I'll finish with this last observation. Peter will make it through because Jesus not only predicted what he would do, what Peter would do, he promised what he would do. And here, just for your observation, let's go look And I promise we'll finish here. Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse 31. 22-31 of Luke. Here is a warning to Peter. Simon, Simon. (laughs) He, He says it this way to get his attention. For him to really take a moment and listen. Listen carefully to this. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Can I tell you, any child of God, if you're in Christ, Satan would have you to sift you like wheat. To tear you up so that you couldn't accomplish anything and Anything that you touched turned to failure. He's like that roaring lion that seeks who he may devour, or in this analogy, that just chop you up. But there is one greater than this one who makes the demand. In fact, he has to make the demand of the sovereign Lord who says no. Verse 32, and this is what I want you to underline. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Are you in Christ? Have you failed Christ? Do you have faith in Christ? Can I tell you the only reason you still have faith in Christ that you may have failed? There is one reason. Jesus Christ is continually making intercession for you. He prays, not just for these disciples, as he mentions in John 17, but all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Often I wondered, how come I didn't turn out like a a lot of folks that I know, that I grew up with? Then I come across this word and recognize, oh, Christ is praying for me. I can't fathom. I can't imagine that. And he has a purpose for it. Because as awful as this sin is, Peter's going to repent. In our text here in verse 32, it says, turn again. That's what that means. 
how does Jesus know that he's going to turn again? How does he know that he's going to repent? Because I'll tell you why. Because Jesus prayed for him. His prayer will be answered. This is why you will go back to confession of Christ as Lord. Why do we don't really need to chase people down? We'll let the hound of heaven do that. And truly bring people to repentance and faith to begin with. And a continuation of it. Because of Christ who is interceding for us. And in that failure and in that restoration, then Peter can go, note the text, strengthen his brothers. How? Because they're going to go and do likewise. And he can keep pointing to the one that's looking at him, and that is Christ. I would admonish us to do the same. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the forgiveness of sin that we have in Christ Jesus and the continuing strengthening that we have from him. May your beloved know that they are more beloved by Christ than any other person or thing that they could even imagine. I pray that the love of Christ would overflow in our hearts, cause us to have increased infections for him and share that with all and strengthen many. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We typically just give you a moment to think and reflect on these things. Respond to Christ in the way he has spoken to you. If you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, I recommend you doing it now. If you have any confessions of sin, go straight to him, recognizing he is praying for you. Let us take a moment now. I think we should sing that, don't you? Let's sing his marvelous grace in 105. Grace, it's greater than all our sin. Jerry, if you'll lead us with that and close us out. Thank you.
blessed are they that dwell in, the, in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, and whose heart are the ways of them. They go from strength to strength, every one of them. In Zion appeareth before God. Behold, O Lord, our shield, and look upon the face of the anointed. <clears throat> For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had <clears throat> rather be a doorkeeper in the house of thy God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Amen and amen. Here it is missed. Thank you.